to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. Amen. Don't you just love those testimonies? I absolutely love it. Um, and you know what I what I love about the testimonies, you know, you can you can basically give those testimonies at any time, in the sense that um, you can give the testimony even before you have any breakthrough. The testimony is not that God is faithful because we've had a breakthrough. The testimony is that God is faithful. Period. Amen. <laughs> and uh, it's just so encouraging, you know. Um, to see Scripture and what God promised in Scripture working out so accurately and so faithfully. You know, God said, we, in this world we will have tribulation, we will have trouble, we will have suffering, we will sometimes struggle, and we do. <laughs> but God says, in the midst of all of that, He will be faithful, and He is. I'm going to um, just share shortly this morning, I'm going to continue on the theme of God's building. And um, there's a scripture, I, I was just actually thinking about the fact that, isn't it, um, and I, th I think the testimony is so beautifully illustrated, it, isn't it so, um, yeah, everything in life that is really worthwhile seems to cost something. Isn't that so? Every accomplishment, every um, experience, every relationship, I, I mean, just, just think of children. Children are, are such a blessing from the Lord, and they, the, the, it's something that God gives, and, and it, it makes you rich. But anyone who's ever had children will know it involves some suffering. And I'm not just talking about giving birth. I'm talking about being a parent. Uh, one, one, of, one of my late friends in, in Franschhoek um, used to say, you know, when it comes to parenting, the first 40 years are the most difficult. And, and then you die. <laughs> okay, it was a bit cynical. It's not that bad, you know. But, <laughs> but um, you know, there is a lot of suffering involved. Uh, you, you know, there, there is a lot of um, getting up in late in the night, you know, when, when you're really tired, you know, um, when you really don't feel like it, but you do it. Um, and and there, there, there's a lot of emotional anguish, you know, as your children grow up, you know, their pain becomes your pain. And, and, and you actually suffer with them. Uh, and, and that's a reality. But, but having children is so worth it. It's worth the suffering. I, I mean, we could say the same thing for so many other things. Marriage, you know, friendship, anything, you know. Um, any genuine accomplishment or something that, that's really worth it and, and, and seemingly anything that's, that's really lasting seems to involve suffering, some form or some degree of suffering. I just want to read you the scripture in, in 1 Peter 2 verse 6. For it stands in scripture, Behold, God speaking, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And, and, and I spoke last time, two weeks ago, about Jesus as, and his word as the foundation of God's building. But we don't all, we read that scripture and we don't always realize, I mean, it's, it sounds harmless. 
I lay in Zion a cornerstone. It sounds, you know, it's a building metaphor, you know. It's like God, you know, took some cement and a truffle or something and, you know, lay a cornerstone. But we know historically how it really played out, don't we? It involved death. It involved sacrifice. It involved the cross. It involved serious suffering. So when God says, I lay a cornerstone, he does it through suffering. And if that's true for the cornerstone, what makes us think it will not be true for us as the living stones? Amen? In other words, when God builds with us, it is going to involve suffering, but just like with, Je- just like with Jesus, but it's also going to be so worth it, just like with Jesus. So worth it. Just like with raising children. Yes, there's suffering, but it's so worth it. It's so worth it. So laying the cornerstone is costly. So just um, on the next slide, uh, the, the picture you know, of God's building on the one hand, metaphorically speaking, is, is, is the tabernacle. I just want to read you a, a portion from, from Hebrews 9. And this is all just, just background. I'm, I'm going to get to my sermon in a moment. Um, the, most of you probably know the tabernacles. There's a little picture up. You had the outer court, and then you had the tent of the tabernacle, which you had to enter through a veil to get into the tent into the holy place, and then enter through another veil if you want to get into the most holy place. And, and just listen to what Hebrews says. It says, just describes, it says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table of bread of the presence, of the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second Section called the most holy place, in which was, of course, the Ark of the Covenant, representing the the, the presence of God. And th- there were all these things. If you look on that picture, places for sacrifice, uh, for offering, uh, for burning incense. There's the Ark of the Covenant. All of that uh, um, is symbolic. Now, I'm going to read a, a, a portion from Hebrews 10, which is a a beautiful portion of Scripture, a powerful portion of Scripture, and. Um, I'm going to focus on the second half, the, the second slide. And when I, when I read it, I want you to especially look out for words that are repeated. Okay? It says in verse 14, beautiful scripture, it says, For by a single offering, single sacrifice in other words, He has perfected for all time or forever those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit says, also bears witness to us, For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering of sins. And then the important part that I want to focus on. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for you promised, as the testimonies 
confirmed this morning. He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as we see the day drawing near. And I believe that scripture, especially verse 19 uh, to the end, speaks uh, about a lot of the, the actual, let's call it mechanics of God's building. How God builds His house. How God builds His house. And, and um, I'm not going to get through everything this week, so um, I'll, I'll continue next time as well. But I, I just want to focus on, on, on the beginning uh, section of that. Um, but before we do, I just want us to, to pray. I, I'm just going to want us to take two or three minutes and turn to each other in groups of two or three. And I want us to pray for God's building, which is His church. And I, and I, and I want us to, to thank God that He is building His church. And then I, I just want whatever is on your heart for God's church and for, for the building process of God's church that's happening, I just want you to, to pray through that with one another. So just, just take two or three minutes quickly and pray. Yes, Father God, we just want to thank you, Lord, for, for your church, Lord. Thank you that we can be part of your church, your bride, Lord. Lord, and we thank you, Lord, that, Lord, even though in a certain sense we, we still need to be sanctified, we still need to be made holy because we're not... We haven't arrived yet, Lord. We're not perfect yet, Lord. Your word says you have perfected us forever. Lord, and it's, it's a, such a great mystery to us, Lord. We don't always fully understand it, but we thank you for it. We, we thank you that we can be part of a, Lord, an imperfect building or an imperfect bride who is already perfected. Lord, and we just want to thank you that you are building us and that you are faithful to do so and that we can be part of what you are doing. We just thank you for that privilege and we worship you and we pray, Lord, that everything that happens to your church, Lord, in, in this congregation, Lord, and in every other faithful congregation meeting across the face of the earth, Lord, that you will be glorified by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, um, it says there in verse 19, uh, therefore, brothers, now, just, just by the way, by now you know what to do with a therefore when you find a therefore in Scripture, right? What do you do with a therefore that you find in Scripture? You find out what it's there for, right? <laughs> Whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, you find out what it's there for. Okay? Now we're going to come back to that later on. Um, and we're going to look at what, what it's there for. It says, therefore, brothers. Uh, and, um, you know, so often we come to Scripture with our modern mindsets and we read that and we go, oh, it's so paternalistic, you know, it's so sexist, you know. And, oh, does that exclude, you know, women because it doesn't say brothers and sisters. And we read our modern assumptions and our modern mindsets into uh, Scripture. But what you need to know about the Greek language is when, they, when there's a group of men, you would refer to it um, with the words adelphoi, which is the plural for brother, so brothers. When there's a group of women, uh, you'd refer to it as, uh, you'll refer to them as Adelphi or Adelphi in the plural, which is sisters. But the, when there's a group of men and women, you would refer to them with a masculine, with Adelphoi. So, um, you know, it's so easy for us to read our modern assumptions into that and, and, and get the wrong idea. You know, 
therefore brothers and sisters would be a quite legitimate translation of that phrase because you use the, the plural for brothers for, for a group that included brothers and sisters. So I don't think anyone is excluded in that. Um, but just look at the structure of that. Did you see the words that are, that are uh, repeated there and that are underlined? Since we have confidence to enter the holy uh, uh, place by the blood of Jesus. What does blood imply? By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. What does flesh imply? Okay. And then he says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. So the, since we have is repeated. And then he repeats another word three times. Let us. It says, let us do three things. Since two things are true, let us do three things. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And let us consider how to stir one another up towards faith and good work. So, so just go to the next slide. I just want to show you how simple the, the structure of this passage really is. Because then the, the meaning of it becomes obvious. You know? It says, since, since, and this is my simplification of it. Since we have, number one, a perfect sacrifice. The blood and the flesh of Jesus. And since we have a perfect priest, Jesus himself, let us, number one, draw near to God with confidence. Let us, number two, draw near to the future with hope. And let us, number three, draw near to each other with intent. Does, does that make sense? In other words, since we have a perfect foundation, let us draw near and build on it. Draw on that, build, build on that perfect foundation. Okay, so I'm just going to focus on, on the, the two since um, clauses um, this, this week. Um, I hope I can get through everything. Uh, and then the next time I'll, I'll look at, at, at the rest. But I just wanted you to see the big picture be, be, before we zoom in a bit. So it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way uh, that he opened through the curtain, that's the curtain of, of the tabernacle, uh, that is through his flesh. Let, uh, uh, and, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Now, we read that, you know, um, confidence to enter the holy places. And, you know, it's like, yeah, sure, whatever. And it doesn't strike us as strange or surprising. A, a Jew reading it, and, and Hebrews were written to Jewish Christians, that would have like, what? That would have blown their minds totally. Because they knew that, I mean... You as an as a, as a Israelite you know, could go into the outer court, but there's no way you could go into the holy places. The holy place or the holy... Surely not the holy of holies. I mean, you could, the priests could go into the holy place and they could, you know, when it was their term to do service, like, like Zechariah in the beginning of, of Luke's gospel, he's, he's drawn by Lot and he goes in and he burns the incense in the temple and so on. Um, so when it was your turn as a priest, you could go into the holy place, you could burn the incense, you could you know, do service with a showbread and all that kind of stuff. But, you, but even as a priest, you couldn't go into the most holy place. Only the high priest, and only once a year, could go into the most holy place. And here, the author to the Hebrews sort of, just sort of, by the way, says, not only you can enter the holy places, even though you're not a priest, even though you're not even a Jew, you can enter the holy places, not only that, you can do it with confidence. I mean, that's mind-blowing to a Jew. It's just because we come with our modern mindsets that are not used to how things work in the Old Covenant that this is not surprising to us. 
It's like, yeah, of course, we take that for granted. Yes, you know, we just enter in, you know. And it doesn't surprise us. And, and therefore, we lose our understanding of the privilege of it. The surprising, the shocking privilege of what, what, what we experience. You know, uh, uh, someone I know once said that, that the tabernacle and the temple is all about how a holy God can be amongst the unholy people without destroying them. And that's where all the curtains and the layers are. And that's why there's all this, I almost want to say admin that you have to do. And you know, the layers that you have to pass to get into God's presence. It's for protection. You know, because man has fallen. You know, God's heart, God's desire from the beginning was to be with his people. But the fall of man made that impossible because we became tarnished. We became blemished. We became unclean. We became unholy. And God is a perfectly holy God. And, and for us as unholy beings to come into his presence would be like a moth flying into a flame. It's just like, you know. That's what it would be like. But God, imagine God as a loving father wanting desperately to be with his children and to hold them. But he can't because if he does, he's going to kill them. Because he's holy and they're not. And that's, the, that's part of the problem that this whole tabernacle or temple thing um, addresses. And that's why, you know, we had to be, God had to make it so that we had to be so careful to come into his presence. You know, because he wants us there, but he, you know, we can't just recklessly enter in. And that's why he knows this is massive. When he says we have confidence to enter the holy places, this is massive. This is big, people. This is huge. And then it's, it says, by the blood and, and by the flesh of Jesus. And that implies sacrifice. The flesh of a living creature that was cut. To be sacrificed on the altar. The blood of a living being that was shed as part of the sacrifice on the altar. Um, so it says we have a sacrifice. The confidence, our confidence comes from the sacrifice. But, but you also just want to stop again and say, you know, even as I'm saying it, you know, you, you think of maybe a, a, a stone altar and, you know, putting an animal on the altar and, and killing it with a knife uh, blood being shed. I mean, we as modern people, that's, that doesn't sit well with us. You know, it's, it's a bit gory, you know. <laughs> you know it's, it's, in fact, we, we, many, for many of us, it feels very regressive, right? Very primitive. Even backward. This whole idea of sacrifice. And there are many reasons for that. Well, one reason is just the way media has presented sacrifice. You know, as superstition. You know, then, you know, because... The modern Western culture is the only culture, modern cultures are, are the only cultures that don't do sacrifice. It's, it's, it's a relatively new thing. Right? All cultures did sacrifice. You know, blood sacrifice. It's a relatively new thing. Um, and and uh, the reason why our culture doesn't do sacrifice is because of Christianity. Ironically. Because there has been one sacrifice to end all sacrifices. So no more sacrifices are necessary. So even in a post-Christian culture, it's because of Christianity that people don't do sacrifice. Okay? But, but one of the reasons we, we sacrifice doesn't sit that well with us is because of the blood and the gore and, and this idea that, no, it's superstitious. It's, 
you know, and, and how the media portrays it as superstitious and backward and so on. So it doesn't always sit well with us. Another reason is because we don't appreciate anymore, and it, that is true to some extent even for us as Christians, we don't appreciate justice. We've lost our sense of justice, and we don't appreciate God as the just judge anymore. We don't appreciate the fact that every sin must be punished. It's not negotiable. If there's a just judge, then every sin must be punished. And, and remember that God is not only a just judge, He's an all-knowing judge. He knows everything. He knows about every sin. He cannot just sweep it under the carpet and turn a blind eye and say, Oh, I didn't know about that. I didn't see that. He knows about everything. He knows about every murder. He knows about every lie. He knows about every rape. And He hates it. He hates it. He must punish it. He must destroy evil. But how does he destroy evil without destroying us? The only way is sacrifice. That sin must be punished somehow, but God, in order to be able to show mercy, introduces sacrifice as a way of punishing sin without having to punish us. Does that make sense? But it's, it's, a, it's, it's not a, for us as modern people, we don't think like that. Because on the one hand, you know, we've, we've lost our sense of justice and, you know, we, we don't see that every sin, you know, the penalty of sin is death, the wages of sin is death, and, and how serious it is. We don't see that anymore. We don't feel that anymore. Our culture has dulled us, dulled us to the, just the heinous nature, the, the terrible nature of sin. But not only that, we've not only lost our sense of justice and God, our sense of God as, just, uh, as a just judge, but we've, we've lost our understanding of covenant, of blood covenant. Because that's what sacrifice was. It was all about covenant. It was all about blood covenant. Blood, the covenant couldn't be established without blood being shed. I mean, even in our, uh, the, the, the one example of blood covenant that we have left in our culture, which is marriage, we've lost our sense of the significance of the blood. Because most people in our culture, it's, 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 it's seen as backward and, and, and just you know, unthinkable not to just sleep around as much as you like before marriage. In fact, you, you mock and you're ridiculed if you, if you try and keep yourself pure for marriage. It's It's, it's unthinkable. But the idea was, you know, why you remained a, a virgin until your wedding day is because on your wedding day when, when, when that marriage covenant is consummated, there's that blood of the virginity that is actually covenant blood. Covenant blood. There can be no covenant without blood. And we've lost our sense of covenant. For most people, marriage is just a contract. You know, a contract of convenience that I sign with someone for as long as it's convenient. And then I, you know, as, as, as when, it doesn't, when it's no longer convenient, I, I just break the covenant. We end the terms of the covenant. In fact, in many countries, they, they're now considering, um, you know, creating legislation that will allow you to get into a marriage that has a two-year expiry date. I'm serious. Because statistically, most marriages fail after two years in every case. 
So you know why not just put an expiry date on it and then after two years if you want to get married again you can to the same person. But you don't have to, you know. It's not a, and and it, that's a contract. That's not covenant. Covenant is till death do us part. It's blood binding us together in something deep and spiritual and supernatural. And, and, and our culture doesn't understand it anymore. We don't understand it. Was, it was such a normal part of ancient culture which has been largely lost to us. And even we as Christians who are rediscovering the power of covenant, of blood covenant, we don't appreciate it as much as, as more ancient cultures did. And that's why we, you know, sacrifice is, you know, yachi to us. And, you know, we don't always... It's not always a positive thought to us because we don't link it to blood covenant, blood sacrifice to blood covenant. Um, and, and then one, another f- fourth reason why we as modern people don't appreciate covenant is because we've become so individualistic in the West, so radically individualistic, and lost so much of our sense of community and community identity that we have no concept of what um, in theology is called corporate solidarity or the one standing on behalf of the many. In, 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 um, in ancient Israel, the king stood on behalf. He represented the people. He was Israel reduced to one. He was the representative of the people. The same for the priest. The, priest came, the high priest came before God as one man representing the entire nation. So I'm not coming alone. That's why I have the, the breastplate, the ephod with the with with 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel on my, on my breast because I'm not coming alone. I'm coming as a representative. I'm coming in corporate solidarity. The whole nation is standing with me in the most holy place symbolically because I stand for them. And if you've lost that sense of one can stand for many, someone can stand for someone else, then sacrifice doesn't make sense because a sacrifice is inherently, I have sinned and someone else stands in for the punishment I should receive. Dies in my place. So if you, if you become so individualistic like we have in the West, then sacrifice doesn't make sense anymore. How can that animal stand for me? How can someone else be sacrificed in my place? We become so radically individualistic that sacrifice hardly makes sense to us as modern people anymore. And our culture has infiltrated our thinking to such an extent that biblical truth becomes hard for us to understand. But Jesus died on the cross and made a new and living way The old way was closed by the curtains and and the privileged could enter it. But he made a new and a living way that everyone can enter through the curtain. That is through his flesh. Remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross? The earth shook. There was darkness upon the earth. I mean, it was the most epic moment in human history. And as he hung there and breathed his last and said, God, into your hands I give my spirit. The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top as the man had done it, but from top to bottom because God was doing it. And the temple, the curtain of the temple being torn and the way being opened for all it, the way that had been closed into the presence of God, being opened for all eternity from then on was 
Because Jesus' body had been torn for us. The sacrifice, the flesh of the sacrifice had been broken, torn for us. And that's why we can enter in. That's why we can enter in. And that's what, you can go and read it for yourself in, in Matthew 27, verse 50 and 51. I don't have time to read that now. And then he goes on in verse 21 of, of Hebrews 10 and it says, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now what is the priest? We spoke about the blood and the flesh being the sacrifice. What is the priest? The priest is the one who makes the sacrifice, right? A priest, per definition, is someone who makes sacrifices. Now, you know, in modern terms, when I think about this, I always think about Lord Farquaad. You know, you remember Lord Farquaad in in Shrek? (laughs) Those of you who haven't seen Shrek, you you must... watch it you know i'm not saying it's a godly movie or anything but you must watch it just for for that scene where shrek walks into the the the, the theater the, the 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 amphitheater where they you know are going to have these deals and so on or, or where lord farquaad is appointing someone to go on a, on a on a dangerous journey to go and find him a bride and and, he, and what he says is you know he, he's talking about this you know he's waxing all lyrical and he says some of you may die but that's a sacrifice i'm willing to make <laughs> Have you seen that? And, and, and so often, you know, in, in modern terms, the priests are the ones, you know, who makes sacrifices they're willing to make, but they're, not sac- they're sacrificing, you know, other people's lives, other people's safety. Um, think about Abraham in the Old Testament. God says to him, Abraham, first he says to him, I'm going to make your descendants as the sand of the sea, as the, as, the, as the stars of the sky. And then he says to him, you know, when he finally, at the age of, what is 9,900, when he finally, miraculously, I mean, you know, 99, you know, it's, it's a miracle, right? It's, it's like a serious miracle. <laughs> you know, finally he gets the son, and then God says, take your son, your beloved son, your only son, and go and sacrifice him on the mountain that I will show you. Which, by the way, was the same mountain, Mount Moriah, which became Mount Zion, where Jerusalem was built, where thousands of years later, someone else was sacrificed. Okay? But he says, now go and... And and I can just imagine Abraham traveling, you know, and it took three days to get there, you know, seeing this mountain, traveling towards this mountain, with a boy with him, with the wood, the donkey and the two servants, and so on. And eventually, you know, the the boy asking me... Father, we have all, everything, we have wood and all kinds of stuff for the sacrifice, but where's the lamb? And then in faith he says, God will provide for himself a lamb. Very significant, eh? But, um, <laughs> you know, I can imagine, you know, th- during that three nights sleeping, you know, and just taking a handful of sand and just running it through his fingers and thinking, descendants like the sands of the sea, looking up, you know, into the unpolluted sky, which we as Johannesburgers that never see, because of the smog and stuff, but looking up into the unpolluted sky and seeing the Milky Way with all the trillions of stars and thinking, descendants like the stars of the heaven. But God had said, I must sacrifice my son. And the only reason God had said it, he stops Abraham, of course. When Abraham wants to, he's tied up his son on, on the altar, you know, on the wood and everything, and he's, he's raised the knife, about to kill him. And God says, Abraham, Stop. It was just a test. 
Now I know that you love me. And he gives him the ram in the thicket in his place. And the place is called Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Now as the Lord will provide a sacrifice. So God doesn't stand like Lord Farquhar and say, some of your sons may die, but that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. No. God says, my son will die. And that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. My son will die. But now, in in modern terms, you know, um, a couple of decades ago, I think two or so decades ago, some radical scholars said, yeah, but, you know, God killing his son is nothing more than divine child abuse. Seriously. That's some of the things that some of the liberal, you know, scholars and so on say, you know. It's just divine child abuse. So is that, is that all the cross is? Is it divine child abuse? I mean, for us, you know, we cringe at it. You know, what a terrible thing to say. But that's the way the world often looks at it. God, you know, is this vengeful, violent God, you know, and he just wants to hurt someone, so he hurt his son. That's the picture the world tries to paint for us. And there's a sense, yes, there is a sense in which God did give his son to be sacrificed. We all know the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, right? For God, we taught it to our daughter, so you you, you teach it as a a little rhyme. John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And uh, then we pull a little funny face and so on. (laughs) But... um, God so loved the world that he gave his only son as a sacrifice. So there's definitely a sense in which God did give his son to be sacrificed. But listen to what John 10 verse 17 says, Jesus speaking. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus says, I willingly lay down my life. It's not divine child abuse. It's not the Father forcing violence on His Son. This is the Son willingly, lovingly deciding to sacrifice Himself. To sacrifice Himself. And that's... That's the power of those. It says, since we have a perfect sacrifice and since we have a perfect priest. And here's the thing. The perfect sacrifice and the perfect priest are the same person. It's Jesus. Listen to this. This is, this is massive, people. Jesus is the only, only priest in the history of religion who sacrificed himself. There's never been any other priest who sacrificed himself. There's never been any other priest that was also the sacrifice. Only Jesus. He's the only one. Hebrews 9 verse 14 says, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says, for by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Isn't that amazing? I'm going to read it again. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. 
So let's just look at that phrase, especially Christ offered himself. It's on the next slide. Christ offered himself. So Christ offered. Who is the one who offered? Who offers? It's the priest. So in other words, Christ is the priest. Christ offered himself. Who is the one who is offered? It's the sacrifice. Christ is the sacrifice. He offered himself for us. And that truth, that we have a perfect priest who made a perfect self-sacrifice, that is the basis that gives us confidence to draw near to God, to draw near to the future, and to draw near to one another. That is the truth. That's the basis on which it's built, the perfect sacrifice of the perfect priest. I just wrote here, Jesus paid the price we couldn't live with in order to gain the prize we couldn't live without. Jesus paid the ultimate price, his very life. Hanging there on the cross and saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He paid the price we couldn't live with. None of us could have paid it. None of us could have paid it. Only God can bear the wrath of God. None of us are able to pay that price. We're able to pay that price. None of us would ever be able to pay the price. He paid the price we couldn't live with in order to gain the prize we couldn't live without. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. And it makes everything possible. So the perfect priest making the perfect self-sacrifice produced the perfect results. Hebrews 10 verse 17 the part about the covenant, um, just a few verses before what we, what we read, it says, Then he adds, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. In other words, the, this perfect self-sacrifice has the perfect results. I will never remember their sins again. That's amazing. In, in the Greek, I just put up the Greek phrase there, which will probably not mean much to any of you, but the, just the first, first two words, U and may are the two words, you have two words for not in, in Greek. Okay? U and may, they're the two words for not. And when you want to say something like is, is like seriously not, when you want to emphasize that it, it's, it's not even a possibility, like never, then you use both. And he says, U may, uh, not, not, I will remember it then. Their sins, I will never, ever, ever again remember their sins. Never the perfect result of the perfect sacrifice. In other words, the perfect self-sacrifice of Jesus allows God to have selective amnesia. Now this is a bit of a, this is a, bit of a, <laughs> a big one. How can an all-knowing being forget anything? <laughs> How can an all-knowing God forget anything? And yet God says, I will, there are certain things I will not remember. Now, uh, I don't think it means that God will not remember the fact of our sins. But our sins will not be remembered in the court of law as an indictment against us. They will not be brought up. They will not be brought to remembrance. They will be forgotten They will be forgotten. Hebrews 10 verse 14 says basically the same thing. The perfect sacrifice has the perfect result. For by that one offering, he perfected forever those whom he is making holy. 
So let's get just back to that, that verse we started with. Um, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a, a, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So God lays this cornerstone, who is Jesus, by allowing him, Jesus, the cornerstone, to die, to suffer and die. In other words, self-sacrifice is necessary for God's building. It was necessary for Jesus as the foundation, the cornerstone, and it's necessary for us as the living stones. There's no way you can be built into God's temple as a living stone without self-sacrifice. We must follow in the steps, the footsteps of our master. That is powerful. That is discipleship. That is following Jesus. Um, the pastor, the assistant pastor in Shofar, Pretoria, called Sean Seville, um, he was testifying of how he got saved. He works for power construction. He's a civil engineer. Um, and he said, there was this one guy who came, I think it was from Shofar Stellenbosch, a student, an engineering student, and he came and he, and he joined um, there. I, I don't know whether it was at Power Construction at that stage, but he joined their, their um, company. And, and he says this guy was just such an on-fire Christian, just so on fire for the Lord. And he said he didn't like this guy. He was like a seriously unsaved a uh, person who didn't like Christians, you know, and you know, holier than thou, you know, and making him feel guilty about his sins that he pretty much enjoyed, you know. So, you know, he, he was, he was, yeah, he, he was, he was a bit upset, you know, with this guy. And he said he, he intentionally tried to be nasty with this guy. And this guy, he says, this guy just took it every time, you know. And he, and he was in a in a in a senior position, so he could like be quite nasty to this guy. And he says, this guy just took it. And he was just nice with him all the time. And he, just, he was just loving towards him all the time. Uh, and he didn't hide his Christianity or his commitment to Jesus. And he just took it on the chin every time. And he says he kept persecuting this guy. And this guy just kept loving him. And eventually it broke him. This self-sacrifice of this young student. And he was actually abusing his power by being nasty to this guy. And this guy just sacrificing himself and taking it and just responding in love, eventually just got to him. He thought, what's wrong with this guy? How can he do this? How can he do this? And it just broke him. And he actually turned to the Lord and he got saved. And he's a pastor now in Shofar Pretoria. He's still working as a civil engineer, but you know, he's a tent maker, you know, working as a pastor as well in Shofar Pretoria. You can go and download these sermons from the, from the internet if you want to. And I think that's such a powerful testimony of how self-sacrifice is necessary for God's building, the building of God's kingdom. I think that's, that's, that's amazing. And, and here's the thing. I'm sure, I don't know who the guy, this young guy was who, who, who led to, to Sean's conversion, but I'm sure if we asked him, why did you do it? How could you do it? That question that, that bugged, how can he be so loving to me when I'm so nasty to him? What enables him to do it? I'm sure that guy would have said, my master did exactly the same for me. The fact that Jesus sacrificed himself enables me to sacrifice myself. Jesus' self-sacrifice empowers ours, our self-sacrifice. Amen? The perfect sacrifice. There's nothing we can add to it. 
Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. There's nothing we can add to what he has done. There's nothing that we can do to deserve. I like what Jonathan Edwards says. He says that we, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin which makes it necessary. We contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin which makes it necessary. That's what we bring to the table. That's what we put on the table is the sin that we need to be saved from. Nothing else. Because Jesus made the perfect sacrifice. Okay, so in summary, you know, Jesus is the perfect priest who made the perfect sacrifice that had the perfect result. And that self-sacrifice becomes a model to us. Jesus' self-sacrifice, which is necessary to build the kingdom, to build God's building, means that that same self-sacrifice is necessary for us if we want to be part of God's building. Father God, we just come to you in Jesus' name. and oh Lord, we just thank you, Lord, that, that each of us, Lord, who have been walking with you for some time, Lord, have a testimony of how we have had to sacrifice, how we've had to suffer certain things. But Lord, Lord, we, don't, we hardly even want to mention those sufferings, Lord, because it's such a privilege to suffer for you. Lord, we, we want to stand with those missionaries, those, Lord, who had great, great cost to themselves. Lord, even the cost of their lives, even the cost of their families' lives went and preached the gospel, Lord. And, and Lord, who are going to stand up in eternity and say, that was nothing. God, that sacrifice we made was nothing. It pales in comparison to the sacrifice you made for us. Thank you for giving us the privilege to, to have the opportunity to sacrifice for you. To lay down our lives for you as you lay down your life for us. Your life which is so infinitely more precious than ours. You laid it down for us. We thank you Lord. Thank you that you loved us that much. And thank you Jesus that because of your loving self-sacrifice costly self-sacrifice we can draw near to our Father with confidence we can draw near to the future with hope and we can draw near to one another to encourage one another Lord you are so awesome being part of your church is so awesome it's such a privilege Lord despite all the niggles and despite all the things that so often go wrong, Lord. It's such a privilege. And we thank you for that. And we love you, Lord. Because you first loved us. Just be glorified, God. Be glorified in us. I just feel um, that um, the Lord is saying there's there are sacrifices. In order to love like He loved, there are sacrifices, self-sacrifices that all of us have to make and that all of us sometimes complain about. And, and you know what, what it is, what the sacrifices are that God has called you to make in imitation of Christ. And you know how you've maybe sometimes complained about it. So I just, want to, I just feel the Lord wants us just to repent of that. And just say, Lord, I, I repent of complaining about these sacrifices I, I, made, I have to make. 
please forgive me and please help me to see it as the privilege for the privilege that it really is just in your own words I feel the Lord even says that there are, there are some of us that have stepped back from making those sacrifices stepping back from, from actually building with God or being used by God in his building um, because we felt that the sacrifices were too inconvenient too much and, and, and we sort of step back and, 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 and I, f- I feel the Lord is just inviting us again and say yes, I'm, I'm inviting you to come and build and be built by me again and, 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 and I'm open with you that it's going to involve self-sacrifice but, I, but I'm inviting you to come and make that commitment again come and build again even if it's inconvenient, even if it hurts even if it's unfair come and build again and um, I just feel the Lord bringing me back again to, to Hebrews 9 verse 14 where it says, For by the power of the eternal Spirit, listen to this, For by the power of the eternal Spirit Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And if Jesus needed the power of the eternal Spirit to offer himself, who are we to think that we don't? Who are we to think that we can do it in our own strength? God, through His eternal Spirit, will give you the power to sacrifice yourself. But that is the only way. It's only the Holy Spirit that can help you do that. He's the only one. He's the one who helped Jesus, and He's the one who will help you. Just just say, Holy Spirit, come and help me, please. My brothers and sisters, I just want to ask you, do you realize how privileged we are? I mean, do you feel this? Do you feel the presence of God? Do you realize how privileged we are? Not everyone has this. Not even every church has this. God is with us. That is such a privilege. It's not because we deserve it. (laughs) God knows it's not because we deserve it. But He loves us. And He's with us. And we must appreciate this privilege. Not everyone has a situation where people can stand up <laughs> and, and, you know, just give testimonies of how good God has been, how faithful God has been in their lives. We are so privileged. God, we thank you. And we worship you, Lord. What else can we do, Lord? That you are so good to us, Lord. <clears throat> Lord, and we just pray, Lord, that we'll have those eagle eyes, Lord, those, that eternal perspective, Lord. When we go through hard times, when we go through sufferings, Lord, Lord, that we'll know that just like you weeped at the tomb of Lazarus, Lord, you weep at our suffering, because our suffering really is suffering, but Lord, you are so much greater than our suffering. You are so much greater than our sacrifice. And your sacrifice was so much greater than ours. And we thank you for the privilege we have of sharing just a little bit in the self-sacrifice that you made. And of therefore building with you. We worship you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name.